Welcome back to another episode of The Wet Snood. I'm here with the cowboy himself, Weston Meredith, and he just got back from a pronghorn hunt in Wyoming. So, how you doing, Weston? Not too bad. Pretty excited to be back on the podcast again. He did, him and his uncle went out, and they uh, they got it done with flintlocks. So, uh, we'll dive into that and cover all aspects of the old flintlock hunt out in Wyoming. So, uh, what was the... Uh, like, where did the plan to hunt pronghorn come from? Let's just, we'll start there. Uh, well, we've been going to Wyoming for about four years now. Uh, every year we go on a hunt, and we always, you know, drove through eastern Wyoming and saw the pronghorn, and neither of us have ever done one. And especially, like, that's surprising with my uncle hunting out there for 40-some years now. And uh, so, you know, we kept seeing him and be like, man, that'd be kind of a fun hunt, something that we probably should try. And... Uh, then we found out about a unit unit 50 that has a muzzleloader season in it and that spoke to both of us because my uncle John builds custom flintlocks and I have one of his flintlocks that he built for me and gave me so we both were like well that'd be a cool hunt to go out and try it try to spot and stalk with a flintlock out in this unit 50 now, I know you've been out the last two years hunting mule deer, then elk, which are both successful trips for you. Was this unit you went to a new unit that you, you never been to? Yeah, we've never even been to this part of the state. So that was, I mean, we've drove through it on Interstate 80. It ran, it's uh, just south of Interstate 80. But other than, like, driving through it, we'd never even set foot in it. All right, so you had to draw a tag. So I'm still not... 100% sure how you get the tag, so you explain to us how you apply and get the tag to hunt for an antelope. So, uh, it took us four points to draw this tag. You can explain how you get the points? Yeah, um, every year in Wyoming you can buy one point, one preference point, and you can only buy one a year per species. So, you can buy like one antelope, one elk, one mule deer, but you can only buy one a year. And then... Uh, they take preference of, so whoever has the most points, uh, will draw the tags that they apply for. So, like, uh, if somebody went into a unit with six points and they had, they were the only person to apply with six points and everybody else had less points than them, that person with six points would draw that tag over anybody else with less points. And then it just goes down the order. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So this unit, it took us, we had four antelope points each, and we applied as a group. And uh, they only give out 50 tags in total for this muzzleloader hunt. So it, that's 40, non or 40 resident tags and 10 non-resident tags. And we applied in the special with four points. So uh, uh, there's like the special preference point drawing and the regular preference point drawing. And in the special, it just costs twice as much, so they figure that less people will apply, so it's a little bit easier to get a tag with less points. Mm -hmm. So uh, there were, I think, three tags in the special, and we drew two of those tags. So, you know, between the entire unit, which is a big unit, you know, probably the size of Clearfield and Elk County combined, um, we drew one out of, or two, I guess, two between the two of us, out of the 10 non-resident tags in total for that whole unit. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, I'm assuming you weren't expecting to get both of them? Uh, well, we applied as a group, so it was either 
You get it or you don't. Yeah, both of us would draw or neither of us would draw. Okay. Yeah. Now, I know you guys keep going to Wyoming. Have you applied to any other states or just going to keep pursuing Wyoming? Uh, so far, I have not. My Uncle John has hunted in Montana and he's hunted in Idaho before. And I think I'm going to start applying to Idaho for my bighorn sheep tag and probably start applying for Montana too, just because those seem to have the better options for drawing it in a random. Mm -hmm. But uh, other than that, I don't know. I mean, we've talked about doing some other hunts in different states, but for now we've just done Wyoming. Yeah. Well, they use flintlocks, which is, if you ever shot a flintlock, you know how crazy that is. And you want to explain, like, the landscape that you were hunting out there, like, how open it was and stuff, and how hard it was to get close to these things? Yeah, uh, there were, there was a a bit of terrain for antelope country. Normally, it is just flat as flat can be in the plains for antelopes, but there was a little bit of terrain, you know, so you had some rolling hills and smaller mountains. So that made it a little bit easier for some stalks, and there was some lowland uh, areas with some river bottoms, so then you could stalk in those areas. But there were some spots where it's just flat plains, and whenever they're out in those flat plains, there is nothing you can do. (laughs) They're just sitting out there, and they can see forever, so you just have almost no chance, unless you, like, maybe belly crawled in a ghillie suit (laughs) for a day and a half you might get in on one but it's pretty tough in the plains country so we had to find a little bit more terrain and uh some lower river bottoms to get in on them i heard that antelopes are basically like hunting turkeys that can smell um yeah they definitely have the eyesight of a turkey but i really don't think that the smell was an aspect like i don't think that we ever got winded even though we had our wind blowing at them they just didn't worry about our wind that much because they can see so much that yeah they mainly focus on what they can see and a little bit of what they can hear but mainly it's their eyes that you have to be the same as a turkey Mm -hmm. you gotta you gotta be on the money you can't be making any you know stray movements and you gotta have good camouflage and hope that they don't see you (laughs) so uh your uncle makes these flintlocks which are absolutely gorgeous do you want to go into like the process of how he makes them and what he's doing with them yeah i'll go into it a little bit hopefully he's on this podcast to explain it better someday but i'll explain the bit that i know about it so he gets a piece of normally maple wood from uh whoever i guess a wood supplier and then he sends out the piece of wood and a barrel whatever barrels he's picking out to make for that gun he picks out the wood in the barrel specific and he sends that to a guy that inlays the barrel into the wood um, just cause I guess that's a pretty timely process that he doesn't feel like doing. Mm-hmm. But from that point, it's just a, like a, basically like a two by four, you know, a chunk of wood with a barrel in it. And then from there he starts, uh, hacking away wood to get out his shape that he likes. And it takes him a few months of, you know, like knocking wood down and sculpting it just how he wants it to be for how you want it to hold and your specific length of pull for the person he's making it for. And uh, I think overall he has about 150 hours in every single gun that he makes. That's a lot of time. Yeah, so... Very meticulous with it. It is. It's really, really insane. But he's been doing it now... 
I bet for seven, maybe eight years now. He's been doing it for quite a while now. Oh, see, he's only just, like, recently got into it, though. Yeah, yeah, this is, uh, he got into it whenever he had a a surgery on his elbows and wrists and was out of work for a little while, so he couldn't do a whole lot of stuff. So, uh, I guess there was an older guy in his town that was making them, so he went over and learned how to make them from this guy. Hmm. And then from there, he's been addicted to it, just gone insane. He's gone to all kinds of different classes and worked with some of the most famous gun builders out there, uh, learning how to do it. But yeah, so, you know, he picks out the wood and he shapes the wood exactly how he wants it. He picks out the specific lock that he wants to use and lines that up with the barrel somehow and gets that set in the wood. He makes his own trigger guards and his own butt plates out of brass and his own uh, uh, patch box on the side of the gun. He makes all of that by hand, forges it all out. And uh, his guns that he makes, they're just unbelievably gorgeous. They are absolutely It's like a piece of artwork. But he's really into making them look old, too. He doesn't want it to look like something that just came off, you know, like a showroom floor. He wants it to look like something that like somebody Jeremiah used. Johnson used it. Yeah, he wants it to look like a mountain man used it. So he does a lot of work on like aging them. He intentionally rusts the barrels and makes the barrels look old. And he'll take a, you know, pieces of pipe and rocks and hammers and chisels and beats into the wood to make it look like it's been battered and used over the years. And uh by the time he's done with them, they look like a 150-200 year old gun. And uh they are they are really something else to see. But also, on top of that, they shoot good. I mean, he'll take a gun, and whenever he's done making it, he sights him in and shoots at 100 yards, and he'll put bullets touching each other at 100 yards. Yeah, I shot the one, and I'm not a good shot with a gun at all. And I hit where I was aiming, which is very surprising for me with these guns. So they, they definitely shoot well. And I was very surprised how, like, they always say that the flintlocks, you have the pull the trigger and you have the wait time. With his muzzle loaders it seems like there's no wait time. They just Yeah. They work well. Yeah, it's pretty instant from the the powder going off to going inside the the flash inside the gun and mm-hmm. then the gun going off, which is all um his own specific way that he makes his touch holes. Yeah. I thought he was doing this for a lot longer for how nice his work is and how meticulous he does it. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly how long, but it's been, you know, less than ten years now. Yeah, that's crazy. Then didn't he just win some type of award for them? Uh, yeah, he used to put a lot of guns in competitions. He's kind of got out of that, but he won like uh, the judge's choice, I think, two times in a row, or uh, something like that. Mm-hmm. Like the judge's favorite. Yeah, for, I can definitely see why. Yeah, for like the aesthetics of his guns. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get into the story. You guys are gonna enjoy this story. It's pretty crazy from the start to the finish. So, uh, yeah, let's talk about you guys heading out there. Yeah, uh, we had a real interesting drive out there. My uncle had just bought a 1997 Ford F-350 with a 460 gas motor in it and bought it about three or four weeks prior to us leaving to go out there. So then we embarked on an 1,800-mile journey in a a truck that was kind of untested a little bit. So we hit about Chicago and going through all the heavy traffic in Chicago the truck started to have some serious transmission problems, and uh, that was a little bit nerve-wracking. So uh, we had to spend the night in uh, a spot where we didn't quite make it as far as we wanted to, and uh, 
they woke up the next morning and found a transmission shop and they didn't even have time to fix it but they told us how to fix it so there we were <laughs> in a curbside of a o'reilly auto parts uh <laughs> changing out a part on the rear axle the speed sensor and <laughs> it's kind of nerve-wracking though thought geez, like geez here we are middle of chicago <laughs> yeah what a place to get yeah middle of chicago down. we're breaking down <laughs> who knows what's gonna happen here yeah. so kind of a bit of a stressful trip out there but then once we changed that part it was pretty much smooth sailing the whole way out truck did pretty good for the rest of the time and then uh it took us two days to get there and we were gonna go into the into the woods the first night but then we were both beat tired so we got a room in laramie wyoming and hung out in laramie had a nice steak dinner before we went into the woods and uh, woke up the next day, and this is Saturday, I think September 4th was our first day of hunting. So we woke up that next morning. So the season had already been open for four days. It opened on the 1st of September. But uh, drove out the next morning into our unit and just started looking around. And we were kind of worried, like, will we find antelope? Because neither of us knew what we were doing. You know, mm -hmm. we read online and talked to some people that had done it, but... We were, we were pretty green in the subject. So we, uh, as soon as we got and pulled off of the interstate, as soon as we got out into a piece of public land, there were an antelope buck and four does sitting right there. So it's like, oh, sign. yeah, it, like, oh, maybe this is not going to be as hard as we thought. So uh, just out of curiosity, we wanted to see how close we could get to him with the truck. And uh, we got about 300 yards away and they took <laughs> off and then... Then we knew we were, like, in for it. Like, uh, maybe not as easy as we thought, but we knew it was at least, there were at least antelope around. So we decided to just keep driving through and saw some other hunters. And then we met an older guy that was hunting in the same unit with a flintlock. And he was, uh, his name was Ed. He was from Cheyenne, Wyoming. So shout out to you, Ed, if you're listening. Uh-huh. And talked to him for a little while, and he gave us some, some good pointers on how to get it done, because he had been hunting antelope his whole life. So he gave us some good pointers on what to do with these and how they're going to react to us. And as soon as we got done talking to him, we went over a hill and spooked a group about 35 antelope. <laughs> spooked them out of the zip code. They were gone. And then uh, we tried, right after that, we went in and tried another stalk on a buck with a we had a like a 2d decoy try to stalk with that boy we scare them bad we <laughs> spook the hell out of them too when you spook them they just run out of sight oh yeah it's like two miles is gone they just start running and it's <laughs> like oh well nothing we can do about that and then uh so we went back and talked to ed for a little bit longer because we obviously had a lot to learn so we were hoping to get some information out of him and drove down the road and we spotted this antelope buck it was kind of bedded on a side hill, but backed up to some aspen trees. And uh, we were like, well, that's probably a stockable buck. We can go sneak around this hill and come down through the aspens and shoot him from behind. He wouldn't even know we were there. And uh, that's pretty much what we we did there. We you know, took the truck out of sight and ran around this hillside. And I let my Uncle John have first shot because I had no interest in my hunt being over on day one. So... Uh, we were sneaking down through the aspen trees and I hung up whenever I felt like we were getting real close and he walked about another 30 yards and I saw him pull up his gun 
and he kept looking through the trees trying to pick out a shot. I could tell that he was, there was a bit of brush in front of him and he was trying to pick out a shot. And finally I seen him steady up and uh, he squeezed off the trigger and you could hear that thud immediately. Just, <laughs> just hit that antelope and you knew it was like, all right, that's it. And as soon as he shot, he hooped and hollered a little bit because the antelope had just dropped straight there, just right down. And uh, so, yeah, it was about three hours into our hunt, and Johnny had his antelope down. Yeah, that's something. He had done that quick. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> neither of us expected to, I mean, about three hours into <laughs> antelope hunting ever. Yeah. And uh, that antelope, when he shot it, was only about 30 yards. So to get it done that close with a flintlock on the first day that you ever hunted him, uh, I'd say we did pretty good for day one. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and then uh, so we process or got that cut up real quick because I guess with antelope, uh, a big thing with them is their meat spoils really fast, and especially out in the hot plains. So we drug them into the shade real quick in the aspen trees and uh, got some nice pictures of them, and got them all skinned out and quartered out in game bags and hung in the trees a little bit to cool. And we called around to a few processors and found somebody that could cut it up for us and got it taken in and cut up. And then we still had not found a spot to set up our camp yet, which is something that we were supposed to be doing that day, but kind of <laughs> failed to do. Got a little distracted with that antelope. So that night we drove all over looking for a spot to camp. And this is Labor Day weekend, so a lot of the campgrounds were already kind of full you know, so didn't want to be camping, like, right on top of a whole bunch of other people. So we drove around looking for, like, a piece of BLM to camp on or a campground or anything. And we did not find anything that was going to be very promising. So we ended up having to drive about an hour and a half to get a hotel room. Uh, and finally found somewhere to spend the night. <laughs> and uh, we woke up the next day. And that we made that our priority first thing, got a camp set up somewhere and started hunting from there. And then uh, we tried a few stocks that day, uh, boogered a few antelope bucks. We did a lot of boogering antelope bucks. <laughs> um, we found another, like a, a big group with a really, really nice buck in it. And we spooked uh, that whole group way out of the area. And then... Uh, hunted the next day and it was about the same results spooked quite a few antelope the next day but tons of antelope all over though yeah we had no shortage of finding them and uh i guess a lot of the residents in the uh, game commission out there said that the numbers are really down this year but we were finding yeah. antelope bucks about everywhere we went you said you're on stocks every day yeah and uh that was my biggest thing i just wanted to try as many stocks as i could try to learn what I could about these critters because I'd never hunted them before so uh went in and did every single stock tried it with a decoy tried it without a decoy tried going over hills trying to come up from the bottom on them and uh successfully spooked every <laughs> single one we stalked yeah so uh after going through that whole piece of public land and some public land we drove to around there uh we kind of decided after two or three days of that that we had boogered about everything in that area so we went back into where johnny had shot his buck and by then most of the the labor day weekend traffic had kind of filtered out but also 
we were not seeing the antelope that we were because they'd been hunted a little bit that whole weekend. Everybody else had been boogering them up. So uh went for a drive, and we ended up finding where they all went to. We found, like, oh, geez, eight or ten bucks all on this one hillside. But it was just one of those spots where there is nothing you could do about them. There's hardly any cover or any, like, serious terrain features that were changing to where you could sneak in on them. And they were just impossible. You could tell they'd done it before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it was like, oh, geez, you know, what did we do? I, you know, I was kind of passing up some opportunities that I might have had just because I wanted to hunt a little bit longer. And then it was like, oh, man, maybe I shouldn't have been <laughs> passing up those opportunities like that. But uh, kept hunting hard scouted and glassed all day that day and we found quite a few but it was just a matter of like which ones can we really get on you know because with a with a flintlock you're limited to under 100 yards you know if it's a really still day and you have a really good rest maybe 110 but that's really pushing it for these especially with a round ball and patch and just iron sights on them so uh it was it was tough to like find more so than looking for the right buck, we were looking for the right stock that we could do. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that whole day, we scouted and just could not turn up anything that was stockable. And we both kind of went back to the camp a little bit before dark, kind of frustrated, like, oh, geez, you know, what are we going to do from here? And uh, Johnny started making dinner, and I decided to go up over one more hill and glass a little bit. And uh, I glassed up two bucks and two does, like, just over the hill from our camp, the other direction that from where we had been hunting. And uh, they were in, like, this kind of brushy bottom with lots of bushes. So it was a stockable one. And I probably had enough time that night to go in and try to stalk them. But I just figured if I let them go tonight, they'll probably be there in the morning. So the next morning we woke up, and uh, we went down through this like kind of like boggy bottom with all this brush and kept popping in and out trying to get close enough and we found uh there was four does and one buck that morning and then another group of about eight or ten does came in too so we had does all over us so we were trying to get a shot on him and all of a sudden it seemed like all the does kind of filtered out and then the buck was the only one left there and he went in and he came like straight towards us coming to get a drink kind of like diagonaling towards us yeah and he came by and he was about 90 yards and i was like yeah i probably can do that shot you know so i stopped him and i took a shot but i shot way too fast i didn't take my time it's usually how it goes he started running and then he stopped and looked back at us and he started running again and then uh, we watched him, and then he just, like, started walking and feeding again. It's like, oh, well, yeah. That... Probably hoping he went down when he stopped the first time. I, I was, too. And <laughs> then then he just kept running. And he was like, oh, well, that uh, definitely did not connect there. What day of the hunt was this? Uh, Day four or five. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it must have been day four. Yeah. So I had a... Uh, and I was kind of frustrated with myself all day that day because it was like, damn, you know, finally got an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it just didn't work out. And that was a big thing. Like, 
really, we probably could have killed some of these road hunting where you just jump out of the truck real fast on these dirt roads and shoot one. But I just did not have any interest in doing that. I wanted to get it, like, crawl through the grass on my knee, hands and knees and shoot one, you know, spot and stalk same way a, you know, a mountain man would have done it 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. There's more to it than just getting it. I think there's more of how you do it more than getting it. Yeah, exactly. It's about the experience you want. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was real frustrated with myself that day. So we went back to the camp, you know, to where our tent was. And we set up a target, and I shot a few shots at about 80 yards. And my first shot, I did exactly what I did with that buck, and I rushed the shot, and I missed the target completely. And then uh, (laughs) the next shot, you know, Uncle John was watching me. He's like, hey, this is what you need to be focusing on before you shoot. So I, you know, I did exactly what he was telling me to do to keep my head down on the gun whenever I shoot. And I took that shot, and it was smoke city, you know, perfect. Mm Mm-hmm at you know about 80 yards so then I was a little bit more confident and like yeah I can make that shot I just need to be paying attention to this when I do shoot mm-hmm. so the next day we were going to go and try to get on this big group of bucks that was on that hill and well I guess we went into the where that that buck was that morning like the day previous we went back in there and we didn't see anything but does and none of them were even close to us so we kind of boogered them out of there I guess and uh, we uh, we were going to go onto that hill where all those bucks were and just try to do something, you know, do a drive or anything to where we could try to push them past us or make something happen. And on our way over there, we were driving along this creek bottom and about 500 yards from the truck, we spotted four or five does and one buck. And it was a, they were on top of uh like this on top of the plains and then right below them was like a 20 foot cliff and then the river bottom which was you know it was a pretty good sized river so it was pretty thick and uh we drove we kept driving until the truck was out of sight and I said all right I'm gonna go down here circle the whole way around and come up through this river bottom you get on top of this hill and watch me and give me hand signals so I can figure out where these antelope are Mm -hmm. and I did that, and I thought it was just going to be like a piece of cake walk, you know, down (laughs) through this river bottom. I didn't realize how thick they actually are and full of beaver dams. And it was ended up being about a mile and a half through that river bottom, but it took me every bit of an hour. And it was like, I was soaked. (laughs) I was in water the whole way up to my waist multiple times. I was, oh my gosh, drenched, caked in mud. And, uh... I'd marked where they were whenever we saw them from the truck on my Onyx maps. And after sneaking for so long, I knew that if I popped up the hill, I had to be at least close. And I kept looking back at Johnny, but he was in the shade, and I had he was giving me hand signals. I had no idea what in the hell he was trying to say. <laughs> it, it was just like, yeah, I, well, you're useless. You know, <laughs> like I can see you. I can see where you are. I don't know what you're trying to say to me. Like I couldn't even see his hands hardly in the shade. So I popped up and uh, I could see one doe whenever I popped up. And I was like, okay, I'm at least close. So I just sat there and I found a nice little bush to kind of get, like, hunker myself in. So they did, I had a little bit of cover and they didn't see me. And I saw one doe and she walked across. And then I saw another couple does feeding. And then I saw two more does coming right past me. 
they were going to walk by me to go down to the creek to get a drink. And as soon as I saw them walking kind of by me, out in front of me about 140 yards, that buck stood up. He was bedded down. So that's why we couldn't see him. And he started walking directly at me until he got on that trail the does were on. And I had ranged those does when they walked by, so I knew kind of where they were at. Mm-hmm. So I knew that whenever he walked by, the does were about 80 yards, and he was just a little bit farther than they were, but kind of walking the same direction they were. So it was about a perfect broadside shot, and I just made sure to you know pull the hammer back and take my time. I lined the sights up pretty high up on his back, and uh, I figured he was about 85 yards whenever I shot. And I just took my time, and I squeezed the trigger until the gun went off in my hands, you know, just kind of to surprise you. Yeah. And uh, as soon as I shot, he took off and started running, and then he stopped just the same way the buck of the day before had done. <laughs> and I was like, there's no way, no way I missed this. And I was like, I was so like frustrated. And he just, just stopped and looking at me. And then all of a sudden, he started to stum- stumble, and I could see his legs shaking. Mm. And I was like, okay. I did get him, and then he toppled over. That would be a good feeling. Oh, my gosh. It was like it was like winning the lottery. It felt amazing. And uh, I could hear Johnny up behind me. As soon as the buck fell, he was whistling, so I hollered back at him. And it was just so cool. It was unbelievable. But the whole time whenever that buck was coming in, I'd never paid attention to his horns. I just knew, you know, he was a buck, you know. I didn't care what his horns were, I wasn't really trophy hunting on this hunt, but whenever I got up to him, and I called you that day, mm-hmm. pretty excited, I was like, holy cow, he was actually a really big buck, one of the biggest bucks we'd seen that whole trip, and I did not realize that he was that big at all, so I got up to him, and I couldn't even believe it was the buck I shot. Yeah, you called me, and you just got up to it, and you said you thought it might be a booner. Yeah, he was big, and I never scored him, so I don't know what he is, but he's he's well in the Pope and Young range. I don't know if he'd quite make booner, but he's probably close. I, ne- I just never scored him. What is the Pope and Young and booner for an antelope? Uh, booner, I think, was like 80 inches, and Pope and Young was somewhere in the 60s, like 67 inches, something like that. So I, I'd guess he's somewhere in the 70s. 70 inches range. I don't think he's quite in the 80s. But nevertheless, big buck. And uh, definitely big for getting it done with a flintlock mm-hmm. on a spot and stock hunt the way I wanted to. And this wasn't even like a, a unit known for big bucks. So it was really cool just to just to get one, period, regardless of the size yeah. of them. And uh, from there on out, it was it was awesome sailing. Johnny went and got the truck and drove around and we went in and cut him up, and then, uh, I guess I didn't add this into the story, so this whole time we were sleeping out of a tent, and Johnny shot his buck on the first day, so we saved one of the back straps, but by now, we were out of back straps. <laughs> we were hurting for meat. You know, we were like, ah, we had to eat a mountain house the day before, you know, it was tough, we were like, ah, we need to shoot something here. We were hurting for meat, so now we had more meat, so we were good, we could stock up the cooler again. Yeah. And uh, then it was just a lot of fun. After that, we did a, a few days of fly fishing. We got our fishing licenses. Just had a good time. Though. Yeah. It Enjoyed just it. Got to relax and hang out. Didn't have to worry about hunting super hard every day. So we got about five days of fishing in. And 
it, after that, it was just it was a good time from there on out. Mm-hmm. Got to check out some new areas that we think about maybe coming back for mule deer or something like that. Yeah, that's cool. It was. It was really cool. And then, you know, got to do the touristy stuff in the area. We went and saw the Medicine Bow National Forest or Na- National Park or I don't know which one it is, but saw the Medicine Bow and got to hang out in the mountains for a little bit, camped up in there. Found some more big antelope bucks in a spot, you know, scouted around for the next hunt mm-hmm. you know, four years down the road when we get to do it again. Yeah. But it overall, it was an awesome time. It was really cool to go in and not know anything and get to learn, you know, like how well they can see, what you can get away with, what you can't get away with, you know, are they going to use the wind or not, where they're going to be, where you can predict them to be, what kind of stuff they're going to do. So we got to see a lot of uh, cool action and got to learn a lot from that hunt. And that's what I really wanted out of it. Because you don't get to do this kind of stuff on the East Coast. Like, you're not going to go on a whitetail hunt in Pennsylvania and be like, I'm doing nothing but spot and stalk all day long. Because it's just, you can do, occasionally you can do that, but it's just not going to happen that way. We don't have the right kind of environment for that. So it was really neat to just go out and get to spot and stalk all day long. Mm Mm-hmm. And learn how to do that kind of stuff. Yeah, but to show you guys how incredible this was to shoot two pronghorn with a flintlock on a D, do it yourself public land hunt, Eastman's Guide, correct? Is that the magazine? Yeah, uh, Eastman's Hunting Journal. Yes, okay. They reached out to Weston. They're going to have him write an article about this hunt that's going to be published in there if you want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, uh, so the editor, he actually reached out to my Uncle John and he saw his Facebook post or something and he thought it was really cool that we got it done with flintlocks. I guess, you know, it's pretty unheard of to be doing that. So uh, he reached out to him and asked him to write an article, but my uncle isn't so much for, uh, not a writer so much. <laughs> But whenever I was in middle school and high school, I was really into writing and did a few competitions and stuff. So, uh, you know, we talked to him and he agreed to let me write it. And uh, I just got finished with it and sent it over to him on Friday. Today's Sunday. I sent it over to him on Friday and I haven't heard back from him what he thinks on it yet, but I hope he likes it. Yeah. I know Wesson's kind of a dummy, but I did read it, and it it's a good article. It's definitely something you're going to want to read when they publish it. Yeah, I might just be a pipe welder, but uh, <laughs> I, I guess occasionally I'm not too bad at the academic side of stuff. Yeah. But uh, is there anything else you want to touch up on? Uh, I think that was it. I think, you know, like, if you are listening to this podcast and think this is cool, go start getting points. Right now, it's uh, almost the end of October. I think you have till. November 1st or November 2nd to get points for Wyoming and you can have a mule deer point an elk point and an antelope point you can buy all three before November 2nd and it'll cost you less than 150 bucks or maybe right around 150 bucks Mm -hmm. and so go out and start getting points because you know it might be you might not have the money today to go on one of these hunts but five years down the road you might be in a situation like man I'd love to go on a hunt. I have, you know, the time and the availability and the money to do it. And I'd love to go on one of these hunts, but I don't have any points. So start getting points now. You never know when you're going to need them. And the point, you don't ever lose these points, right, once you have them? Uh, You have to buy one at least every other year to keep them. So, like, if you buy one and don't buy any more for three years, it resets you back to nothing. So, you know, buy them and keep buying them every year. And, you know, it might be six or seven or... 
eight years down the road whenever you have the time and money to do it. But then, you know, if you have you eight points, points, you're going to get the license. Yeah, if you have eight points, you can hunt almost anywhere for almost any species. I mean, like, Unit G, which is like a world-renowned ana- or mule deer hunting unit in Wyoming, it, it's uh, eight or nine points right now. But if you start today, eight years down the road, you know, and maybe even sooner if their population starts going back up and they start giving out more tags, it might even happen sooner than that. So, yeah, and uh, time flies, so yeah. it'll be, before you know it, you'll have the points and the time. Yeah, we're Gage and I are still young, and we were just talking today, like, you know, I just got a fish mount back uh, from the taxidermist five years ago today, and I saw that on my Snapchat memories. Yeah, it feels like yesterday. Yeah, it feels like phew, a couple days ago that I, you know. It's hard to believe that was five years ago. So mm-hmm. it goes by fast, by points every year. So whenever you're like ten years down the road, like, man, I got all this money and time now. Let's go on a mule deer hunt, or let's go on an elk hunt, or let's go on an antelope hunt. Yeah, and then Absolutely. you'll be able to do it. So yeah, I guess that sums it up. Go out, do something cool that you always wanted to do. Figure out how to find the time. Make time. Get her done. Save money. Go out and do a DIY hunt like we did, you know? In a cheap tent and cheap sleeping bags and <laughs> an old truck. And go out there and do what you got to do to get out there and do it. Because it's, uh, it's worth it. It's uh, one of the coolest experiences I've had in my whole life. And the West, in general, has changed my whole life. I'm actually... <laughs> I'm actually about to quit my job and go out there and work for the winter on a lodge just because the West is so unbelievable. So if you haven't been out there, make the time, find the time to go out and do it because it's worth it. It's totally worth it. Alrighty, well, you said not West, so if there's any any ladies listening, you're out Wyoming? Yeah. Give old cowboy a text. Yeah, you know, hit Gage up on the <laughs> Wet Snood podcast and get my number. Alrighty, well, thanks for coming on, Weston. It was a great podcast. No, thanks for having me. I'm always excited to be here.